a sip instead of yours. If you're looking for a way to get more positive things going into your life, I'd encourage you to check out our friends at Christian Living Magazine. You can find out everything you need at ChristianLivingMag.com. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. We are back. We are back. It's been, man, I don't even know. It's been a while. <laughs> it's been, what, a month? Month, maybe a month and a half. Yeah, so family and I, we took, as, as many of you know, we are missionaries heading off. So we, we took a fundraising trip and went up and up and down the Oregon and Washington area. We call it our Pacific Northwest Funding Tour and then we had our national convention, our national and international convention for our church group was meeting in June. So we we went to that convention and got to share and talk with a bunch of different pastors and leaders and different other people who are interested in what's going on in the world of missions and in the world in Pakistan. So that was great as well. And uh, and then, yeah, Sonny and I took an extra week and a half to go and uh, help out some people at another place that shall remain nameless at the point at this point in time. So we are on the 13th lesson today. So this is the 13th lesson in the book of Genesis. And we are now on the Tower of Babel. So this is chapter 11. Again, this is one of those really, really short verse counts. We're only doing 11 verses today which is a really, really short amount, 11 verses. We're in chapter 11, nine verses a day, chapter chapter 11, verses one to nine. So again, is a really, really short verse count. And, but there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into it. <laughs> there's maybe not a lot that's directly in those nine verses, but how it impacts our theology, how it impacts going forward, how it impacted the Jewish people and the Israelites going forward throughout the Old Testament and then into the intertestamental period and into the New Testament and even today and and how they viewed back then God's working and how sin crept into the world and how and why things were the way that they were and and thus how it shows throughout the rest of Scripture. It's all very heavily tied into this, even though it's a really short spot. So it's a good time. It's a good thing to get into. So let's do it. Let's just dig on into this and, and get going. All right, Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9 in the English Standard Version. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. 
So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. All right, this can actually break into four different spots, but with nine verses, four just feels a bit extreme. So we're only going to break it into the two main categories, which is verses one to four, which the plan of man, and then five to nine, which is God's response. So we, we have what man is doing and then how God responds to what man is doing. And, and I think that's the basic way we're going to break that down. Verses one or two. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, whole earth, again, you start getting into this, what was it really? All the peoples and, and yada, 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 all, all of these different debates. Does it necessarily mean every single last individual human? I mean, maybe not, no. But it's symbolic. And it, it's saying that it's a representative of all of the peoples. Okay, a representative of the peoples, like the, the grand scheme of things, all the peoples came. Don't get tied up in that. If you're one of those people who, who want to really just cut hairs, the concept is the unification of the peoples. That's the whole point of that, that whole section here. There's nothing in the narrative that suggests that this was restrictive, meaning that except these other peoples, but, or except for the one or two people over there. No, no, no. There's nothing in the narrative about that. But just don't don't feel that you have to cut hairs and say every single living human being was over there. Yeah, it's it's okay. Let's just go on. The one language, one language in the same words here. The the people were unified in their speech, not only in their speech, but in their style of living, right? It was like one basic culture. If you talk to people who study culture throughout the world, there's a few things that that are very common denominators and what determines the culture. You're never truly going to understand a culture until you speak the language and not just speak the language. Like, okay, so Spanish is a great, great way to understand this, or even English, right? We speak English, but we would actually say we speak common English. We don't speak the King's English or the Queen's English, right? That'd be a British English, which is a, a bit different than the American English. We would speak more of the common English because it is more of the trade English that's used around the world. When most people speak English, most people in areas around the world speak more of an American-style English than they do a British-style English. Okay, well, they're a bit different, and our cultures are a bit different. Spanish is another great example of this. It's something that most people in America are going to understand well. Different areas that speak Spanish are very different. And their versions of Spanish are different. There's different versions. Okay. So some words, some slang words mean certain things in certain areas, not even just slang, uh, a word that can mean something very bad in one area that speaks Spanish, go to a different country. And all of a sudden that, that word might just mean it's burnt or it's cooked well. Like it, it, it's, it's, it might be swearing one area and it might mean absolutely nothing like that in another area and vice versa. You, you don't really learn the culture until you get a grasp of the language and how that language functions and works. And so when you're saying here that they had one language and used the same words, it's it's not just being repetitive. It's just saying they have the same culture. The same words mean the same things. Okay, the same words mean the same things. Have you ever tried to communicate with somebody who's not from your area? Maybe, maybe 
on a little bit more of a global scale or off the other side of the, of the country and you use an idiom that you don't even realize, you use it so much you don't even realize that's what it is and, and they take it literally and get confused and say, well, what does that mean? Oh, okay. You know, that's, that's the sort of thing that we're discussing here. It's being described. Everything is interlinking. It's one unified people who really understand each other completely. Their culture's the same. The language is the same. Their food's probably about the same, right? Which seems weird because if you go back to the last lesson, which we did, which I know it's been a little bit, but if you go back to the last lesson, we, we did the table of nations and it talks about how they were all spread out and everything. Well, keep in mind with the book in Genesis, the book of Genesis, it's really a multitude of different books that do different things. It's not so much, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's basically chronological, but it's not. There's times where it goes forward and then it kind of comes back because it wants to discuss the narrative, that whole section, that whole idea. And then it might go backwards a little bit to start the next idea because they overlap. And so this concept brought out and brought out the table of nations. Well, the table of nations happens at the dispersal and after the tower of Babel. <laughs> so then he hits the tower of Babel. It goes backwards slightly. And so at this point, it's a unified group of people, basically all, all living the same way. Now they migrated. If you notice here, they migrated from the East, which might sound like an unnecessary an unnecessary bit of information. They're migrating from the east into the land of Shinar and they settled there. Okay, why do we need to know that they came from the east? You know, it's, oh, well, it's just, he's telling a story and stories only make a lot of sense when you add those special little details, right? Every storyteller and every writer needs to add these special details in there so that it makes it feel real. Well, there's actually a little bit more to it than that. There's there's multiple different theologians out there, and there's a couple different commentaries. Unfortunately, I didn't write down which one it was, but this is uh, Matthews, I believe, wrote this commentary. It pointed out this, this really interesting concept. If you go through the book of Genesis, eastbound, when people did stuff that was mm, bad, <laughs> okay, went against God, and God sent them out, and they were going against God and leaving that, they would leave godly direction and go somewhere else. It was always towards the east. And so when people had done bad things, they would go east. And so when they are migrating from the east, it's because they're trying to come back towards God, because east was the way that you went away from God, so they would keep trying to come back towards God. Okay, I know that seems a little weird, but it is it is a thing, okay? Now, also the, the migrated here, they migrated in the Hebrew that the, the term here actually means to pull up stakes, to pull up stakes. So they're nomadic. Okay. You had the flood. And so this is post-Diluvian, meaning after the flood and they're a nomadic people. Yes. Noah became a man of the soil, planted a vineyard or an orchard or something, and most likely a vineyard, but still planted something and then created a, 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 a strong drink and got drunk, right? We, we went over that. So he did settle in one area and built, but the peoples after Noah became spread, you know, became nomadic and they were trying to spread out. Well, think about it. Why? Why were they spreading out? Well, because God renewed the command that he had given Adam and Eve to go and to fill all of the earth. That was God's command to Adam and Eve. And then after the flood, 
He gave that same command to Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives to go go out and spread out and fill all the earth. And so the people are nomadic. They're a moving people so that they can grow and fill and expand and do these things. Once you start settling into a city, you're not moving outward anymore. You're not doing any of that anymore. You're settling in one spot and you're just wanting to populate and build into this one area and develop for yourselves. So you're not following God's command in that. So the concept here is to pull up stakes. So they were a nomadic people and then they decided to not be nomadic anymore and to create a single civilization inside and to unify together to do as many quote unquote great things as they could. And they pulled in together. So again, they're they're kind of kind of going against what God's described and told them to do. Now with the the eastward, I know we were just discussing that, but let's get back to that in a second, right? That concept of when you go against God, they would tend to the east. There's several different examples of that, but but just to give you one example of what we're discussing here, let's let's go back to Genesis chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 24. He drove out man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, so this is, right, after Adam and Eve sinned, right, everything's out. He drove out man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way, guarding the way to the tree of life. Why would he place it on the east? Most likely because that's the direction that he put them out. So, okay. So eastward direction, again, going against God. That's the way that God has a tendency in the Genesis account to put people when they were going against his direction. Now, now the area of Shinar, they, they went, they were pulling up stakes. They were coming from the east. So they're trying to head back towards God. Okay. They're no longer nomadic. They're trying to settle in one area and they're going back towards the direction towards God. And they're pulling into the land of Shinar and they settle there. Now, Shinar, this is an area south of where the Euphrates and the Tigris approach each other. This is Babylon, which again, we're going to get into this a little bit more, which is why the the Babel and Babylon, so many people think it's the synonymous, kind of is, okay, that's fine. But this is the area of Babylon. They settle in this area, which means, again, they begin to live in that area, which is contrary to God's command of filling the earth. Let's move on to three and four here. So finish this little chunk. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Which again, it's kind of funny, lest we lest we be dispersed was what God told them to do. Right? So that we don't go and do this. Let's all come here and make a name for ourselves and do this. Okay. All right. Three, three and four though, they, they said. Now, this is kind of a key point here. They said. So Moses is writing this. And so the, the narrator, it's always fun. You read some of these commentaries. And it's like, uh, the narrator, the narrator. Well, okay, let's just go back to this. This is historically accepted. It, Moses is writing this. So Moses is, is allowing them to condemn themselves. He's not placing condemnation upon them by saying, oh, God went and did this and God says that this happened. No, no, no. He's, he's giving them their own account. He's allowing them to have a voice for themselves, which is why they were being condemned. It's not God just saying, eh, I'm not happy with you and snap, you're, you're going and doing this. Okay. This was their own decision. 
and he's giving them their own voice so that they can have that decision. So it shows that this is on them. Now, the bricks and bitumen. So first of all, this is not how the Jewish people of the day, the Israelites of the day, built things. Now, again, Israel didn't exist yet in this part of the story. But it's Moses giving the account of how things had built up, how God worked, how all of this worked, so to set the foundation for the faith of the people. Okay, so this is all pre-Moses talking, right? This is Moses giving the account of how it all came about and how it all came together and why the world worked the way that it works, why how God works through people the way he does, why there's all of this different stuff happening. He's explaining and setting the foundations of the faith. Okay, so keep that in mind. This is pre, the story is pre-Israel. But, but, he is speaking, Moses is telling this to the Israelites while they're wandering around the desert. He is telling them the story to set the foundations of the faith. So you always have to remember when we study God's word, we want to make sure we get it in the context of those who it was originally written for. Okay, yes, it's a living document. It goes forward, great. But we also want to make sure when we study it, we look at it from the eyes of the people it was originally intended for so that we can glean out the proper information out of it. Okay, so Israelites of the day, wandering in the desert, were not building cities with brick and mortar. This was a different way of living for them. They pulled out of Egypt. Egypt kind of did, sure. But they were not used to this. This was not their style of doing things. And so he's giving an account of what was going on because this was the Babylonian way of doing things. Hey, Sip and Studiers. As you may know, the family and I have been called into missions and are now officially missionaries to the church in Pakistan. Can't tell you how excited we are for this. It's a great opportunity and we are so blessed for it. But if you've known anybody who's gone into missions, you know, can't do it on our own. We need people to be partnered with us, partnered in prayer, and yes, also in financial support. But there's so much more. If you feel God tugging at your heart, letting you know that he has a plan for you to make an impact in the church in Pakistan, we'd love for you to reach out to us and partner with us. And you can do that and more at chogglobal.org slash dsbrown. That's chogglobal.org slash dsbrown, as in Drew and Sonny Brown. Now, back to the study. Okay, this was the Mesopotamian, and this was the Babylonian way of doing things. So the bricks in the, the bitumen, now, the discussion here of the bricks being burnt through thoroughly, the ability to bake that kind of clay and turn it properly into that kind of stonework so that it would, would work. It took a bit of building. You had to have a bit of resources. You had to have knowledge of a way to do this and put it together and, and get it done. It's not just an easy thing to, you know, to, to do it. Some would sun bake them so they would just bake over time and it takes quite a long time to, to finish that. Others would oven bake them. Uh, the fact that they're talking about burning them thoroughly tells me that most likely they were oven baked, which would make them stronger and harder and last longer. 
Okay, now the, the bitumen, bitumen for mortar, depending on the translation you're reading, some translations say different things with this. Some of them will say it had they had tar, others will say other different things. Bitumen, well, here in America, we call it asphalt. You know, it's commonly referred to as asphalt or that kind of that kind of sticky, hard asphalt. Okay, you could also think of tar that you would be putting on on a roof, roofing project or something like that. But it's really more of of asphalt, the sort of the really dark black piece. When they redo pavement and they put the black top on the asphalt, that that is the asphalt. That is bitumen. That's what that is. And they had that for mortar, so it's really really strong stuff. So they were baking their their stones, their bricks, really hard. They had really, really hard mortars, so this should stick and last and last a very, very long time, okay? And then they said, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city. Now, again, they're not building God a city. They're not building everyone else a city because that's the people's coming together, right? Build ourselves a city and a tower. Now, the city, one of the key structures of a city that denoted that it was a city and not just uh, a settlement of sorts was it was a permanent structure. Now, a permanent structure had walls of defense. Now, this is why some people would say, well, see, it wasn't everybody. And again, this doesn't necessarily need to include absolutely everyone. It was just saying that all of the people groups were represented here, right? All of the the basics of the peoples are there. The vast majority have come together and they're doing this. And a city has a defense wall. It has a defense structure. And so it would have a wall around it historically. We don't have that situation in anymore because we don't need it. And honestly, it doesn't make as much sense when you have aircraft and everything else and, and the type of artillery and things we have. Walls just, walls like that don't do as much. But for, for basic foot traffic, you know, this is why if you get around a compound, you go to a developing country or a third world country or even here in the U.S., best ways to keep people who are on foot out of an area that they're not supposed to be in you put up a wall. <laughs> you just do. So there you go. So that, that was just a normal thing. So they're building themselves a city, which would include the wall, a wall around it. So a defense structure and a tower. Now, tower, this is one of those things with the ESV that is uh, for the term that is used here. That's a great, great translation. But what kind of a tower is this? This, this leaves a lot to the imagination. In fact, the term used here for tower can really mean in in most situations, especially when you're dealing with a city like this, in most situations, it means a watchtower. You know, oh, it's a military post. It's a watchtower. But, but again, we've already been given the clue. This is being built in Shinar, which is where Babylon is. Okay. So the people are going to have an idea. Okay. This is most likely referring to Babylon. And the people will have heard stories and, and are aware there is this massive temple tower in Babylon or Babylonia. Okay, there's in Babylon, there is this giant temple tower. The term used for this is a ziggurat. And this is a, I think like Machu Picchu, right? You have the, the almost a pyramidal stepstone structure tower that goes up. Now, in some areas, these are huge. Like in the one in Babylon, it was described when you when you went through uh, the Mesopotamian writings, it was described as touching the heavens, which we're going to see here in a little bit, right? It's described as being so tall that it touched the heavens. And in some areas throughout Mesopotamia where they would build these ziggurats, they would actually build them 
so large and so wide that not only were they just in the city and most often they were in the center of the city and indistinguishable from the city. Like the city wasn't recognizable without it. But beyond that, some of them were actually so large that they fully encompassed the city. The city was built on the steps and on the sides because they would build it up and then there'd be a flat post and then they'd build it up again, step up, and then there'd be another flat area. And the city itself was literally built on the sides of these ziggurats going up to the top where the temple area was where it would be trying to call in and and sometimes they would even try to capture their lowercase g gods and, and hold them and, and try to entice them. And it was a way to try to give the gods a, a way to come down to earth and they would put these things in the top temple area to where they could try to trap them there so that they could really go and, and talk with them and worship them and, and get what the people felt they needed from their gods, okay? That's what these ziggurats were. And so this tower is actually a representation, and it is a ziggurat, which, again, the Jews or the Israelites didn't really have a term for. And so this, this word here, which means tower or watchtower, using the Mesopotamian region, using the bricks and the mortar, and knowing that this is in the area of Babylon, and the description of this matches the descriptions in the Mesopotamian writing, the Babylonian writings of the ziggurat there. This is the ziggurat in Babylon. Okay. And this mountainous temple tower was so tall that it would reach the heavens. And the the actual title of a ziggurat, it, it means like a gate of heaven or a gate to heaven. And that's how the ancients believed that they were going to, to get to their gods because it was a gate to heaven. Now, they wanted to make a name for themselves. Lest we be dispersed. Again, lest we just be dispersed. I, I just kind of chuckle about that because it literally is what God was telling them to do. You are supposed to go about, go out into the world, spread out, multiply, do these things. It's a wonderful thing. That's that's your command. You're supposed to go and spread out. You are God's representation, right? You are the image bearers of God, the most high. Your whole task is to go out and spread across the world and and have dominion over the world. But instead of doing that, the people want recognition and power and they want to be together and they want to, so they, they clump up together and to do this other things and they want to make a name for themselves. See pride, pride right there. Pride is their folly. The people went against God and not filling the earth. They wanted to do their own thing, their own way and be known for it. And the, the kind of comical thing about this is they are known for it because of this account. It's thousands of years later and we still discuss this account and they are very well known for it, but not in the way that they were wanting. They wanted to be known in a good way. They are unfortunately known in not a good way, unfortunately for them. Now, verse five, and the Lord, now it's capital L-O-R-D, right? Capital, all caps. When we see the all caps again, this is Yahweh. This is the, the designation for Yahweh. Now, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. So not only did it not reach the heavens and be so big that God stumbled on it and was kind of caught in it. He came down to it. He had to come down to see this, right? He came down. Imagery, right? Anyway, which the children of man, not the children of God, but the children of man had built. God is omniscient. God knows all of these things. He's very well aware of it. So why does he come down to do this? This is actually a really beautiful thing that we recognize with God. Even though God is omniscient, he is all-knowing, 
You're not hiding anything from God, especially if you're building a giant tower. If you were supposed to go and scatter and, and spread across the earth and you all come together into one place and build a city and a tower, you're not hiding that from God, okay? He's very well aware of what's going on. So why does he have to come down and do this? Well, we see this throughout Genesis, and we've already kind of talked about this in the past. He takes an opportunity to come and inspect. Why? Well, just because he knows doesn't mean that he doesn't want to show his creation his love and his affection and his caring and that he is actually just. And so he comes to inspect what has happened and what is going on before casting his judgment. He takes time and takes an opportunity to go and check out the situation, even though he already knows. And with the divine counsel, he already has other things of report coming in and doing what he knows, but he still takes the time to go and inspect to give people an opportunity. That's kind of a cool thing. And it's, it goes beyond, you know, does God have to do that? No, no. By no means does he have to do that, but he does it anyway. And that's a major theological point that we can understand and take through Genesis. God is so caring and so just, even though he already knows and already knows people are worthy of that judgment and that wrath, he gives the opportunity. He gives the opportunity. It's huge. Now, he came to see what the people had built. Now, here's, here's depending on, again, depending on the translation that you're going through, which the children of man had built, had finished. Now, what's crazy here is you go through different translations and different translations say, we're building, not finished. Some say finished, some say not finished. Now, the Hebrew inside of this does actually say had built. It is a, a definitive, it is finished because he wanted to see the city and the tower, which the children had built. Why is this a big thing? Well, when we come a little bit later here in verse eight, they left off the building of the city. They weren't finished building the city. The point here is that had built was they had finished building. You know, what, what was built already was finished being built. Okay. They were maybe working on some other projects, but he came to see what was finished. Okay. Came to see the tower, which the tower was most likely finished or more or less finished. Different things were finished, okay? So it was, it was has built. But again, verse eight says they left off building. So he came to see what it was that they had already finished building. Six and seven. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. I always love this. Why? Because if you don't, if you don't take into the account the, the divine counsel. If you don't take into the account the, the divine counsel, which God working with his creation, God always loves to work with his creation. He created for what? Relationship, right? <laughs> I love how we always miss this. God, you talk to so many Christians and they don't necessarily want to recognize the divine counsel. And, and it's like, well, why did God, why not? Well, God is all powerful. He doesn't need anything else. Correct. He doesn't, but he still sends angels to go and do stuff. Well, but that's different. Okay. He sends people to do things. Well, that's different. God created the Garden of Eden and, and was walking and talking with man and told them, you're my image bearers. You know, I want you to, to be responsible over that stuff. And he was having communion with them and discussing with them. He was working through them. Well, that's different. No, 
It's not. God, God loves to work through his creation. He created for relationship. He wants to work with his creation. So the, the concept of a divine counsel makes perfect sense. God's working with his creation to go out and do things. So if you take out the concept of the divine counsel, which is in and throughout scripture, okay, it's not just in one or two little places. It's, it's actually there. But if you take out the concept of the counsel, who is God talking to? Because it, otherwise, God is talking to himself. God said, the Lord said, and this is, by, by, by the way, throughout a lot of uh, different churches, that is the theology. God here, when you ask, well, when you push, what, what does this mean? Who is he talking to? Well, he was talking to, you know, himself. It was the, you know, the Trinity. This is evidence of the Trinity. I don't think this is evidence of the Trinity because that right there would say this is evidence of a madman. Okay, if somebody speaks to themselves, it's because they're lonely. They don't have anyone else that they can converse with. They can't share their ideas and their concepts with. And so someone who's speaking to themselves is a lonely person and potentially on the border as of becoming a mad person. And, and that's not a good thing. And that is not a representation of the God of the universe, especially not the God of the universe who craves relationship and creates so that he has the relationship and loves to work with his creation, with and through his creation. This is an evidence of God discussing with a divine counsel. See, here, the Lord says, behold, they're one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Let's pause here for a second. Why does that matter? Well, first of all, one people, one language. The people after the flood were commanded again to spread out and fill the earth. They weren't doing that. They were nomadic. Now, they're not nomadic. They've come into one place. They're one language. They're unified. They've got one base culture. They're all working together. This is something that society there was seeing as good, but it was against what God had commanded for them to do because, again, people were meant to be the image bearers, image bearers over the whole, and they're not going out into the whole. And so God sees this as bad because it's not what his plan is and not what his call was. Why does this matter? Nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. This is just the beginning. See, clearly the heart of man was still against God and God's desires and his commands for people. People wanted to do what people wanted to do. Man, that sounds a lot like today. God, I don't care how you made me. I don't care how you designed me. I don't care how you called me. I don't care how what you want me to do. God, you need to come alongside my wants, my desires, my plans. Not necessarily, I want to fall in line with God. No, that's not what people do. Society has always been the same way. God, if, you know, if they believe in a God or gods, it was always come and bless me, take care of me, 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 me. And then you get the, the religious zealots, the religious group of people who would, you know, I have to do enough to please the God or gods or whatever. And they would work, 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 and it becomes workspace. But again, it is always for their own personal gratification. I want to please God so that I can get. That's not what God's wanting. That's not his thing. So the heart of man is, again, against God. And so he's saying anything that they want to do because of their unified language, this hasn't been very long since the flood. And they're already coming back together 
and they're building a city. They're already ignoring the base root command of go, spread, and multiply. <laughs> they're multiplying just fine. They're bunnies down there. But, you know, they're not spreading out. They're not filling the earth. They're not taking care of the rest of creation like they're supposed to. In fact, they're setting up defenses and creating a single spot. And they want to start to come and take control. Because, again, the ziggurats were there to a way to take control of the gods. They were wanting to call down gods so that they could make God work for them on their terms. And God turns around and says, no, that's not how this works. Everything they people were doing, again, we look throughout humanity today, same basic thing. The will of man goes against God. Just It just does. And so God says, anything that they're going to plan to do, because they're a unified front, they're already making bricks and mortar, they're already rebuilding, they're building a structure, big enough structure that it's reaching up into where the clouds touch it. Again, you go through the, the Babylonian text and the writings about that ziggurat. It went up high enough to where the clouds could touch it. So it was tall. Anything else they're, they're going to want to do, they're, they're going to be able to work together and grow together and do this. This is, one, not good for two things. Their hearts just continue to go against me. They're just going to make it infinitely faster that they're going to continue to go against me. Bad. But two, they're not doing what they're supposed to do. The purpose of man is to be out there being my image across the earth and taking care of the earth. I need to make that happen. So then we go here. So come, verse seven, come, let us go down there and confuse their language. Again, come, let us, sign of the Trinity or God working with his divine counsel. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Communication and cultural understanding was the key to the unification. If you ever want to feel out of place, go to a different country that doesn't speak your language that you don't understand. You will feel out of place faster than you know what to do with. It's going to seem really cool until you try to order something. And even if you have Google Translate on your phone, when the internet's down and it's not working for you and you can't use the picture thing to translate the, 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 the menu there and you can't talk with them and you have no idea what that stuff means, okay, you know, you're, you're kind of that you're going to feel on your own. You're going to feel out of place really, really, really fast. So that cultural key and that communication key are pivotal to how this works. And since the people would not spread out as they were commanded, God decided he would do that for them and to them as a judgment. He wanted them to do it. He said, you're going to go and do this. This is your call. This is what you're supposed to do. They wouldn't do it. And so he says, fine, I'm going to make you do it anyway done. Where else do we see this in the Bible? Oh man, I don't know. If only there was an entire story about this one guy who God called to a certain city that he didn't want to go to and he tried to flee. And then the people on the boat realized, hey, wait a minute, God's not happy here. What's going on? And he says, it's me. So they throw him overboard and he gets swallowed by a huge fish and then gets spit up on the seashore. And then he ends up, finally goes and does what God's called him. Oh man, it's, if only there was something in the Bible about that. So that, you know, this could call kind of tie in together. I don't know. All right. Eight and nine, eight and nine. So the Lord, again, all caps, Yahweh, very make, making this distinction here between all the way through Five to nine, notice this, all of these capital lords, the Yahweh, 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 the personal, the very personal came down and saw this. The very personal said to the divine council. And he says, again, let us, meaning the divine council with him, go down and do these things over. So again, here, the Lord, the Lord dispersed them, the personal God, 
saying, I'm taking responsibility for this. Your call is this. We're making it happen. The Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. Now, again, does that mean literally every single spot on the earth? They just kind of like vanished and were there now. And what happened? Or did they scatter? I I don't know. The, the story is very vague in this. We don't know how it happened. We just know that God made it happen and said, no, you're not all staying here. Done. You're, you're going out. Okay. So they scattered there from over the fa- all over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. So they stopped working and doing what they were doing. Does that mean all of them? Probably not, because Babylon existed. Okay, the city was there. People, people inhabited that, and it went off. So some people stayed because that other culture base would stay there and do it, and the rest of them started to spread out and go out all over it. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Dispersed. This is the opposition and the opposite of settled and the opposite of the desire and the plans of man, which was already opposing the call of God and the command of God. So if mankind wouldn't do it, God said, I'm doing it for you. And he did. So this is then the explanation of how the table of nations makes sense, going back to the table of nations in chapter 10. And they left off building. The city was not complete and the people could no longer work together due to the lack of understanding and communication, so they stopped as a whole. Again, the city kept being built because some people stayed, because some people could communicate. They found they had that cultural tie, and they went, and they continued to work, and others left. Now, the Babel confused. Now, the the Hebrew here, Babel, and I'm going to say it in the English phonetics because it just that's how we're used to hearing it. Otherwise, it sounds weird. The Hebrew Babel means confusion, and it sounds like the Akkadian Babylou, which again, those don't sound sound right to us, but they do in there and in, in the Hebrew tongue and the actual Akkadian tongue, which means Babylon or Babylonia, which means the gate of the God. Okay, Babylon means gate of the God, with the Mesopotamian high God being Marduk. Now, thus the place where humanity was trying to get to and control their God, or either lowercase g or uppercase g, whatever, the gate to God, right? Because the ziggurat was the gate to heaven. And this is the gate of the God. The city was. Thus, this became the place where confusion and God confused the the words and different cultures began and they spread. So where they were trying to create this great name for themselves as being the people who, who had the gate to God and the gate to heaven and became the place of known as confusion and the names sound alike. And so unfortunately for them, it changed what name they were trying to develop for themselves. Now, normally we would start out a section like this and we would talk about what is the broad, broad spectrum understanding of this up front and then go into the scripture. I thought it made sense this time to go through the scripture and then get the broad sense because it's just, it's this is a little bit of a different different piece and we miss a lot of it in, in our Bible studies and what we do, because if we're, if we're real, if we're going to talk real about this, when was the last time you discussed the Tower of Babel at church? I think for most Protestant Christianity and most Protestant Christendom, it is a Bible story that we teach in VBS and or to in children's church, we teach to the kids because it's a really short section. It's really easy to teach. The people came together and they were building a city and they were building a tower and God said, this is not good. And he spread them out. And so, you know, we, we have this very, very 
basic understanding and a children's grasp of this because we don't really teach it beyond that because there's not much else in the scriptures directly about the Tower of Babel. We have this incident. In fact, if you look in and say Tower of Babel and you start looking through your scriptures, you find that. 11, 1 through 9. Plain. That is it. And so we think it's really not a big deal. It doesn't really impact theology. It really doesn't impact my faith, my understanding in God, my understanding in Jesus. And so nobody takes it any further. Well, the problem with that is it actually heavily impacted the Israelites' understanding of theology. And we see evidence and sprinklings of the concepts of what is created here throughout the rest of the Old Testament and even what goes into the New Testament. We start seeing pieces of this and how that theology works around. And what happens here is part of the reason why what happens in Acts and getting the gifts of tongues and then even Paul going out and why why did Paul, you ever wonder why did Paul want to get to Spain so bad? It's because of this. It's actually because of this. This event is why Paul wanted to get to Spain so badly. And it's because he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was so well-educated. He understood the theology so well that he knew this needed to happen. But we'd give it no second thought because we go backwards and it doesn't make sense to us, especially in the West. So let's take a few minutes and let's discuss this and the broader concept and the broader ideas of what's going on here. And why is this actually a big deal? Because if it was such a small deal, again, like the Genesis 6 account, Genesis 6 verses 1 to 5, if that was such a small deal, why was it even there? Why was it even brought up to begin with? I think it's a bigger deal. And so did the theologians of the day. So let's take a look at it. What is this? What's going on? What does this mean? Let's take a look. Deuteronomy 32, 6 to 9. Because again, if you look in and you go, well, if we're just looking straight for the Tower of Babel, this is the only thing that talks about it. But there's more. Deuteronomy is also Moses, by the way. This is part of the first five. It's considered the law. When you hear you hear the talk of the law, the capital L law, it discusses the first five, the first five books of Moses, which is the dependence on everything of, of all of the, the Israelite faith. Moses expands on the understanding of what's happening here. So let's take a look at it. Deuteronomy 32, 6 to 9. Do you thus repay the Lord? Now, mind you, it's not actually here. It's verse 8, but I want to get it in a little bit more context. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? So this is in a sense of rebuking. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. Here you go. Here's the spot. Verse 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, here's the addition, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. But... Verse 9, the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So why does this matter and why wasn't it talked about earlier here? Well, the Lord, his portion, his people, Jacob's allotted inheritance. Is Jacob around yet? Is Israel a thing yet? No, it's not. So it didn't make sense to talk about this in this portion of the narrative, this portion of the story. But he clarifies it and he describes more 
going here in Deuteronomy. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, that's talking about the Tower of Babel. That's talking about this situation we just read. He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. Now, if you are reading a translation, if you have opened up your own Bible, and which I hope you do throughout these, if you're reading an older translation, older translations oftentimes use newer, like newer manuscripts, meaning they're not as old of manuscripts because archaeologically, we've found things that predate that stuff. And so... Some of the newer translations, such as the English Standard Version, the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, the ESV, the CSB, they use the oldest found manuscripts. And why is that important? Because the older they are, the more likely they are to be closest to the original text. And we find it the same, same types of writing in different other writings around in that era as well. And so we've been able to correlate and do these things. So these other translations use the oldest found manuscripts, the closest to the original. And the closest to the original say, according to the numbers of the sons of God in verse eight, your translation might say, according to the number of the sons of Israel. Well, we just discussed this. There's a problem with that. Israel did not exist at that point. In fact, what happens after this in Genesis? We start going over and we start to discuss Abram, Abram's story. We actually go through another line of lineage and how it gets to Abram. And then we start going over Abram, who is Abraham, and his story and how that becomes and how God chooses his people. Deuteronomy here is talking about the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob's allotted inheritance. We haven't even got to that part of the story yet in Genesis. It hasn't happened. So you can't discuss this part. So, but why does the sons of God versus the sons of Israel? Well, again, Israel doesn't exist. But who are the sons of God? The sons of God doesn't just mean people who follow God. Sons of God is a term found throughout the scriptures. This is Bene Ha-Elohim. And Bene Ha-Elohim is a, is a term and a phrase for the divine counsel. The divine counsel. So when, this is, this is why I'm saying the theology goes and it moves stuff off, okay? The divine counsel. So when God dispersed the people, he placed over them kind of placeholders to point back towards God, because if they weren't going to follow him, because clearly they weren't, every chance he gave them, they kept going away and wanted to do their own thing and, and do all these other things other than follow God. And so he placed placeholders. He allowed the divine counsel to intercede, to be there, to point them towards God. And the divine counsel uh, really kind of failed at this. They, they really, really failed at this. And they, again, developed pride and, and wanted them and, and had them start to worship themselves and was doing evil things to people. They were getting really frustrated with God. Again, I think the divine council, much like spirit entities, much like humanity, kind of have a similar concept. They, they want a certain thing and they think they're necessarily doing good, but that good is not good in the long run and it's not the right good. And so they would potentially get upset and frustrated with people and they started working roughly and, and badly with the people and then they started doing other things and they kind of d diverted and got away from God and, and it started doing bad things. And if you want to have an idea of why I say some of this, read Psalm 82 on your own time. 
Psalm 82. Footnote that one. Because that one, whew, want to have a theological discussion. There you go. Have that one right there. Anyway, Luke also brings mention of the Tower of Babel incident in a little bit in Acts. Now, not the part of Acts where I discussed earlier where we're talking about the spreading out, okay? No, 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 not, not the tongue falling and, and people getting the gift of the Spirit. This is a different portion of Acts. Let's look at Acts 17, 26. Acts, Acts 17, 26 says this, and he made from one man every nation of mankind. Wait a minute. One man, uh, instantly you want to think Adam. True, I guess, you know, in the long run. But what about, what about Noah? Noah and his sons and their wives and his wife. It all comes from one man, Noah, made every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. That sounds like spreading out to me. Having determined allotted periods, okay, so there's a lot of time frame in those areas, and the boundaries of their dwelling places. This is discussing Deuteronomy 32, which is discussing Genesis 11, 1 to 9. Genesis, so Deuteronomy 32 is giving a, a greater context to Genesis 11, 1 to 9, and Acts 17, 26 is giving a context on top of Deuteronomy 32. They're all working together. The concept is here. You just don't necessarily see, you don't necessarily see the Tower of Babel itself being displayed. So let's keep going. The Tower of Babel incident shows something that the Jewish readers of the day, and even going in through the New Testament period and onward, in fact, if you talk to people outside of Western civilization, if you talk to people in a developing country, third world country, where they have a little bit more of a an understanding of the spiritual, a little bit more of an understanding of what's going on behind the scenes, because they they rely on God daily, right? They they rely on that. It's a to, to people in the West, God is almost like an afterthought. It's like it's you're crazy. Why do you worship God? That's 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 silliness. We can do everything on our own. Okay, great. Talk to people who can't do everything on their own and they are reliant on God. And all of a sudden the spirit realm becomes a very real thing. It becomes a very, very tangible reality. And they live in that, in that understanding of this is real. And it's just as real as everything around us. Just like I can't see air, but I know I need it. And, it's, and without it, things don't work. I die. Things don't move right. Things do. I, okay. It's the same concept, right? It is a natural piece of, of the puzzle that they understand and work with. And so people in those regions understand this as well, especially when you get into places that are polytheistic. They believe in multiple different gods. There's different gods for different regions. I'm sure when you read history, when you went through history class, you would read, this god was the god of this territory. This god was the god of this territory. This was this god over here in this city. Well, why was that? Why was that? Why would there just be gods? Why would people believe there was a god over a certain region? Doesn't that just seem weird? That just seems kind of odd and out of place. It doesn't make sense to, at least to a Western mind. And it makes sense to everybody else. And so it was just, you get kind of that stock answer of, well, that's just the way it was because people were so ignorant in their day that they all just kind of developed their own little thing. And so, yeah, they all just had their own different gods. And you're like, oh, okay. It was just because people were stupid that that, that stuff happened, right? That's, that's how that works. And so you get into that mentality and it's really easy to just write it off. The Jewish understanding of the day going forward, and I hope that's something that you can glean from this, is a concept known as cosmic geography. Cosmic geography. 
They understood this. And the idea of cosmic geography was that when God dispersed the peoples, he had parts of his divine council that were spread out over. And he spread them out and he divided the people into these different regions and different people groups. And he divided them out from there. Now, people continue to divide and divide and do different things because that's what people do. Just like, hey, there's one church. And then you get, oh, well, that's the Catholic church. And then you get the Orthodox church. And then you get the Nestorians and you get the Eastern Orthodox and all that. And then some of them starts to fall away. And then you get Protestants come about and say, whoa, 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 we've missed the boat. And you get Protestantism and that splinters and becomes a thousand different versions of Protestantism. And they just think Baptists and you get a, a thousand versions of Baptists alone, right? People just do this. They have issues and, and they disperse and they break apart and they do different things. Okay, so that, that's fine. But the original breaking apart was in this area. And depending on your translation and where you did, it was either 70 or 72. Okay, this is a division of a 70 or 72 groups, which was the divine council. He broke them up and so that they were overwatched by overseers. <laughs> that almost sounds like a New Testament term for pastors or something. I don't know. Overseers who were over these groups of people to help guide them and to keep guiding them towards God, to point them back to the right direction. He was having somebody overseeing them to make sure that things were going okay. And then they failed. Kind of like people, they failed. You know, cosmic geography is that idea that these overseers were over certain regions and certain people groups, but they were kind of in this region. So it was like, this is your area because... You're not everywhere at once like God is because spirit creatures, spirit entities are not omnipresent like God. When you think the devil and you think Satan, he is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere at once. He isn't the actual physical devil, the actual real rather one person entity devil is not attacking every single person. He has demons and stuff doing it. The enemy's doing it, sure, but he's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at one time. He's not the one doing all of the different things. So just like with the divine council, they were broken up over regions, certain areas. They were to oversee and watch this and make sure that things were going okay and that they were pointing people back to God so that they could develop and do what God was asking them to do and then get it back into place so that there was a regional coordinator or something like that to, you know, however you want to do that. That's why, you know, so there were these different things. And then you had the demonic that would come in and then, and then they would try and people would create false idols. And some of that was, you know, behooved and, and part of the demonic and different things and, and yada, yada, yada. And it just fell apart and went down there. But there was a breaking up of 70 or 72, depending on the numbers and the way you do it. Again, weren't we discussing that with the table of nations? Yeah, we kind of were. And there was that breakup and did this. Okay. And this, this concept though, why does this concept matter? This concept matters because this right here, because the gods of the regions, they only had their powers because they only had authority to work in that region. This is why God working in Egypt was an amazing thing. This is why God going and defeating the Babylonian God and gods was a major thing. This is why the God of the Bible doing all these things is such an amazing thing because he transcends the borders and the boundaries because he created them. He doesn't need the boundaries. He doesn't need the borders. He created them. So he doesn't need that. This is why it was such a big deal to have the God, the great I am, who was able to do things anywhere and everywhere because he created the borders. He doesn't need to work within them. That's not his thing. Great example. Now, some of you are saying, Drew, you're reading into this way too much. Okay, let me let me give you a little, a little taste. So you guys have a few more minutes here. Give you a little taste. Let's take a look at the story of Naaman. Naaman. You guys familiar with Naaman? Okay, Naaman was, was a general 
and he had leprosy and he went and he said, hey, I, I, I'm gonna, I don't want leprosy anymore. And they said, hey, well, uh, go and talk to the, 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 the prophet of Israel. And then he seems to have like this way and this thing. So see if he's got something to say for him. And says, yay, dunk yourself in the Jordan seven times and you'll be fine. You'll, you'll be healed. Naaman was ticked off. He's like, that's just stupid. I can go dunk myself in whatever river I want. There's nothing special about that, that muddy pond. I don't need that. And, and so here, 2 Kings 5, 11 to 19. 19a, we're not going to do the last part. Anyway, but Naaman was angry and he went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord as God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpa the rivers of Damascus better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, my father, what? it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Like, hello? <laughs> Who cares what water it's in? If he says dunk in that water, this is an amazing thing. Won't you at least give it a shot? Verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean, and he returned to the man of God. Okay, now we're going to skip a little bit. Verse 17, then Naaman said, because he was trying to say, let me pay you, let me pay you, and and, and no, I'm not, I'm not going to take your money. I don't want your money. That's not what this was for. Just, just go. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. He wants soil. He wants soil. He's not, now you won't take my money. Would you at least give me some of the dirt? Sounds really weird. Mule loads of earth for from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God, but the Lord. Why would you want dirt to offer sacrifices to God? In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master, because he was a general, he wasn't the king, when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, because he was weak and frail and he needed to go down. And so, so when he bowed down, he would have to go down with him a little bit. And so he would bow down with him a little bit. Leaning on my arm, I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. Wait a minute. What does dirt have to do with any of this? It was a common concept of the day. The gods worked in certain regions. Different gods, lowercase g, did different things and worked in certain regions. He wanted dirt from the land of Israel so that the God of Israel would have power where he was because I'm not going to worship this other God anymore. I'm not worshiping other gods. I'm worshiping the God of Israel now. Now, mind you, he wasn't going to get circumcised. He wasn't going to convert to Judaism. He wasn't doing, he recognized this is God and I'm going to worship this God. I want dirt here so that I can worship on the ground of this God where I'm at. That's cosmic geography. I want the soil from the area of this God. His understanding was gods are over certain areas. He didn't have the understanding of this is the God of everything. 
cosmic geography. There's another great example of this in Leviticus 17. Leviticus 17 verses 1 to 7. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron. Now, mind you, this is something that's, this is, it's a little far out there. This is this is about, Leviticus 16 is about Yom Kippur, which we'll discuss in a moment, but this gets a little bit out there. And so just, just be aware, but this is something that's, it's just, it's reality. This was, this was the reality of the day. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, this is the thing the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of the meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. Blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. Verse five. This is a key part right here. Verse five. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. Go on a little bit more. And the priest shall throw the blood at the altar, does the regular offering. Verse 7. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to, here's where it gets weird, goat demons. Some translations will say satyrs as well. Okay, demons, goat demons, after whom they whore. Sounds really harsh, but you actually see that in multiple different places. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. Now, I said this is tied to Yom Kippur. Why and how is this tied to Yom Kippur? <laughs> Well, it's this little thing called the scapegoat. Have you ever heard that that term? We don't use it in, in Protestantism very often, but there is a scapegoat. And a scapegoat was with Yom Kippur. So that during the Yom Kippur, okay, the high priest would make a sacrifice for himself and for his family so that he would be cleaned. And he would put on the proper garments and he would go in and he would do the burnt offerings and do the stuff so that he could actually be in the, the, the Holy of Holies without dying. And he would do these things. And then there were two goats and a ram. One was done for burnt offerings, and then there's the two goats. Now, the two goats, the high priest would actually then take the goats before the entrance, and he would cast lots, which again sounds really weird to us, but that's what they would do. They would cast lots. One was determined for the Lord, and the other was determined for Azazel. Now, the one that was set for the Lord was sacrificed as the sin offering for the people, and it was sacrificed to God, so they would impute all of the sin on this goat, and it would be sacrificed to atone for, to wash over, to purify the people of Israel, okay? Now, at that point, the people of Israel are holy. Those sins don't belong there anymore. They have been washed clean. Then they would actually place on, symbolically, obviously, but they would place upon the other goat all of the sins of the people. Mind you, one was sacrificed to atone for the sins. The other one, they would place the sins on the other goat, and they would send it off into the wilderness for Azazel. Now, Azazel was, again, into the intertestamental period writings, Azazel was essentially the Satan figure in the Old Testament. When they narrowed it down into a single understanding, because again, when you go in and you see Satan or Satan in, in Hebrew, it, it means accuser, and it was a position on the council. It was a position that was potentially multiple different entities, okay? And so this Azazel, you get into different parts of writing, including First Enoch and things like that. Azazel was one of the leaders or the leader of the rebellion that was part of the Genesis 6 account. Okay. 
So Azazel was the Satan figure of the Old Testament. And this was not an offering to Azazel. It was taking the actual sins and sending it out into the wilderness to where sin belonged, to the evil one, out into the wilderness. The wilderness was seen as an, as an evil place where demons and creatures and the evil was. And so they would send that goat out with all of the sins on it because this was now holy ground and this was a holy people. And that sin didn't belong there. And so they sent the sin away to where the sin belonged. Told you, it gets weird. But this concept of cosmic geography is all over the place, okay? This, this whole thing, this whole idea of what's happening here sets the stage for God beginning to bring order out of the chaos of sin. Now, how is that? When God, it seems like God creates disorder, right? It seems like God creates disorder because people are coming together and that's unity and that's order. But they were doing order for the wrong reason. They were doing the wrong thing. They were doing something that God had commanded them not to do because they were doing bad things because the heart of man is bad and God had not created this different way yet. And so this needed to change. And so God spread them out to fulfill the first order of business, which was multiply and spread over the land. You're supposed to have dominion over everything. So spread and go. So he creates that. And this is the setting the stage for bringing order out of the chaos of sin, the chaos that is sin. He wanted then, and he still wants today, mankind to still bear his image in creation. Thus, people needed to spread out and go and fill the earth. God wanted to bring humanity back into order and back to him. So this was his plan. Now we have things created, okay? It was go down the order of what's happened so far. Things have been created. Sin enters the world and the, the world falls apart due to supernatural interference. The biblical reset, okay, the flood happens. People were growing in numbers again after the flood. And people wanting to come together and gain control of God and everything else, they said, thus the Tower of Babel. God now sends them out, separating their speech, okay, splitting up their speech and their culture and dividing them up unto the number of the divine council and spreads them out over the earth. But God will have a chosen people of his own and one that the salvation will come through. And we're going to see that coming forward, okay? So what do we take away from this? Hold you, we just needed a few more minutes. Okay, after the fall, man's way is continually going against God. It just is. That's just the way it is. Adam and Eve chose to listen to the serpent. The daughters of man fell to the sons of God. And the reset of the story happened. And again, the people gathered here instead of spreading out and tried to gain power and control over God's command. Okay. Regardless of the plans of man, God is still in control. God allows people to do as they will but he is not afraid to intervene when he deems it necessary. God does step in when he deems it necessary. Not necessarily when we think it's deemed necessary, but when he deems it necessary. Now we see the beginning of cosmic geography, this understanding of cosmic geography, where different lowercase g gods are over different people in different areas. But the true God, the one God, because again, we get the schema, the entire idea of, of the Bible all the way through it is, there's really one God. There are not separate gods. There is but one who created everything. Anything else is not a real God. There is no real God other than God. Okay, so that lowercase g is there are different entities believed that are over these things, okay? But the true God is over all. There is no other God but the God of the Bible. And finally, when the spiritual enemy thinks they have all but one on the human front, God takes what they meant for evil and turns it for good. 
hold strong in the face of evil. God is in control and trust and have faith in him and in what he is doing. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this wonderful group of people who comes together to, to study together, to learn what it is that you have said throughout your word together so that we can grow, so that we can be better servants of yours, we can be better people of yours, better sons and daughters of yours, so that we can go out into the communities where you have us, so that we can make an impact and a difference in other people's lives, so that we can be your image bearers throughout creation. God, I just ask that you you shine your favor upon us, that you give us calls and words of wisdom so that we know what we're doing, God, and, and put us in the proper positions and the proper times and to do what it is that you're calling us to do and give us the strength and the courage necessary to fulfill the task that you're, you're calling each and every one of us to do, whether that's small or big, even if the small things feel huge and if the huge things feel small, God, just, just be with us and be with your people and shine your light out there. We ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thank you guys so much. Glad you are here. Hope you got something out of this. I, again, small section, lots of stuff. All right, we will talk to you guys next time. God bless and bye-bye.